Taking Stock with Mandy Johnston. Thanks to Skillnet Ireland, driving business success through innovative training and upskilling. This is News Talk. You're welcome to News Talk's Taking Stock. I'm Mandy Johnson. On today's show, I'll be joined by more international and Irish experts who drive our world of business and politics. And coming up on today's show, concerns for Ireland's energy security gathered apace this week with some more ominous reports in the Financial Times that Britain may stop supplying gas to mainland Europe if the country's hit by extreme shortages in the coming months. So we'll be discussing the potential implications of this and wider energy issues with Dr Paul Dunn from UCC and Mark Varian, who is chair of the Energy and Environment Committee with the British Irish Chamber of Commerce. And PwC has called for greater clarity on new rules that oblige larger companies to report and publicly explain their gender gap. I'll be joined here in studio by Duno Doherty to examine what's happening. And finally, it's been another eventful week for UK politics. We'll take stock of recent developments and what it all means for Boris Johnson's leadership with political scientist Sir John Curtis. You can get in contact with us by emailing takingstock at newstalk.com or on Twitter at stocknt. But first up today, this week, the British-Irish Chamber of Commerce hosted a discussion on the security of Ireland's energy supply and it also looked at our energy storage capabilities ahead of the winter months. I'm joined now by Dr Paul Dean, who's a senior researcher in clean energy futures with Science Foundation Ireland Centre in University College Cork and Mark Varian, who's chair of the Energy and Environment Committee at the British-Irish Chamber of Commerce and partner at Head of Construction and Projects at Evershed's Sutherland. Mark, Paul, thank you very much for joining us today. You're both very welcome to Taking Stock. Thank you, Madhuro. Now, Mark, I might start with you first, please, if I can. Can you just talk to me about uh, why you felt this was an appropriate time to have a conference like this, what you were trying to achieve, and what were the major takeaways from it? So, the British-Irish Chamber of Commerce tries to provide a platform for informed conversation around our members' needs and in particular, in this case, the energy sector. So we invited members from the CRU, the department, ESB and the ERSI to have a conversation with our members around topics of the day. And of course, over the last while, the major topic has been sustainability and the need to combat combat climate change. My apologies. Obviously, with the onset of the Ukraine war since February, the issue of security of supply and has arisen and what it, its impact will be on the drive towards climate change. So is that part of that dialogue that we were trying to have on Wednesday evening? The CRU, you mentioned there, who are the Commission for Regulation of Utilities, uh, who oversee the, the energy sector in Ireland in terms of uh, regulation. What was their main message to your conference? It's probably... Don't panic. There are measures being taken at European level and indeed national level that should help maintain security of supply in a very difficult situation. Paul, I might bring you in here. We had you on about six months ago, uh, which seems an age now uh, to discuss the issues that we're facing us here in Ireland about our energy security. A lot has changed uh, since then, very little of it for the better. What's your take on the position vis-a-vis energy now? 
Yeah, Mandy, and unfortunately, the situation has deteriorated quite rapidly uh, rapidly since we last spoke. And I agree with Mark there that the, I suppose the message from the CRU is yes, don't panic, but we also need to be proactive. Uh, we must acknowledge that Ireland is uh, is a country that's highly reliant on fossil fuels. 87% of all our energy this today is coming from fossil fuels. We're spending oh, just under 1 million euros every single hour importing fossil fuels into Ireland. And unfortunately, Ireland has very little sway over how much we pay for those fossil fuels or where those fossil fuels come from. And it's, I suppose we're particularly exposed when it comes to natural gas, uh, uh, Mandy, particularly reliant on transit from the UK and through the UK. And natural gas is a fundamentally important fuel for our economy here in Ireland. Um, it is the, the main fuel for our electricity generation, but it also powers about 700,000 homes. And for a country that uses so much energy and yet produces so little, we're, we're very much exposed. So I agree, yes, we should not panic, but we need to be a lot more proactive in, in, in securing our energy future here in Ireland. Mark, just to bring you back in here, um, I used to work in the energy sector myself, and I have to be very honest that before I did that, I had no awareness and cared very little about where the energy <laughs> cared from when I plugged in my kettle in the morning or tried to charge my phone. And I think there's lots of people like that. Are your members um, different? Are they concerned, more aware than they were before because of recent uh, developments at a very high geopolitical level? Has energy now become a focus in a way that it has never been in the past? I think I think the, men, the members at the event are all energy experts. So there wasn't anybody that's sort of coming from an uninformed point of view. But I, I would agree with you that there is a sort of a, an expectation of people that there'll be business as usual, the lights will go on. I, I think what's happened since um, February, and I would agree, agree with Paul, that we're going to go through a period of, a short-term period of substantial disruption. But, but the long-term drive towards decarbonisation will, in fact, accelerate. But, of course, that takes a long time to achieve. So even since February, the EU have introduced new regulations around the acceleration of development of re- renewables across Europe and also even last week issued a new regulation around the use and storage of, of gas, natural gas. But there is, a, there is a sort of structural issue within gas supply to Ireland. We do import a substantial amount of it. We import it through the Moffat interconnector from the UK. We can't import it by ship yet. There's no liquefied natural gas um, terminals in Ireland. All natural gas that isn't produced in Ireland comes through the UK. So that act of solidarity through EU member states is somewhat diluted because we don't have a direct link to any other EU member state. Paul, I might bring you back in here now. Um, We import 70% of our gas from the UK, as uh, Mark has alluded to there. But is it reasonable to assume now that if Boris Johnson's government is willing to rip up international agreements, you know, ones that relate to the EU and might potentially threaten a a US trade deal, um, they may not have any kind of moral allegiance to fulfilling their obligations to Ireland if they needed the supply themselves as net importers. Yes, that's correct. Look, there's a low-level conference in the UK government following through on, on legal agreements at the moment. We're seeing that play out here, unfortunately, here in Ireland. 
but the decision by the UK to to, to propose uh, um, cutting off these two interconnectors, it, it it has a number of issues, and and it could it could backfire. Look, those two interconnectors. They're important, but they're not crucial for the UK in terms of their energy security. If there was an energy crunch in the UK or some form of rationing, those interconnectors would not be able to import uh, gas from mainland Europe anyway, and the UK could rely on LNG. Uh, but the challenge is for the UK, if what if other uh, member states take the same approach as them? Mm. Um, uh, Norway, for example, which supplies 40% of the UK gas. Now, the narrative within, within that we're hearing in Ireland and we hear in the UK is that, look, we have legal agreements with the UK, with, with Norway, uh, and that would suffice to to follow through on those commercial arrangements with uh, between Norway and the UK. But Norway might choose to take the moral route rather than the market route. And mm. if Norway are seeing um, you know significant gas ra- gas rationing in mainland Europe, if they're seeing uh, you know uh, social conditions being toughened and coming in very hard, Norway might choose to do the same route as the UK and divert gas from the UK uh, into mainland Europe. That would have uh, repercussions for us for us here in Ireland, we would essentially become collateral damage uh, to that decision, and that would that would certainly lead to more significant rationing uh, within the UK and by proxy. Then that would have knock on effects for us. So, uh, as a whole, really, what we need in times of an energy crisis is that you need unity and you need solidarity. And this decision by the UK, I suppose, goes unfortunately against both of those. And hopefully, we won't see it follow through by other member states. Okay, Paul, so maybe uh, let's look at the alternative. Let's look at LNG or even gas storage. What's our capacity or what are the barriers for Ireland in relation to LNG? Do we have any gas storage available to us at the moment? No, Ireland is unusual, Mandy. We don't have any gas storage or any, uh, any or no LNG in that regard in Ireland. And I think that the right track for Ireland is certainly to pursue the decarbonisation and renewables route. That certainly is the future, but the problem isn't the future. The problem is the present. Mm. And we do need to look at options such as LNG and gas storage in Ireland. Now, the challenges there is that they will also take a number of years to deliver. Um, we need to understand those options. We need to understand uh, the, the financial feasibility, the, environment impa- the environmental impact of each of those options. But they are not silver bullets on their own. They will take time to deliver. So the upcoming winter uh, could be quite challenging. If we do see rationing across Europe, that will probably filter into UK and will filter here to us. Now, in many regards, Mandy, we're, we are seeing a level of self-sanctioning and self-rationing going on with industry across Europe at the moment. Uh, and we are seeing, you know, small signs of that here, uh, that here in Ireland. But the upcoming winter could be challenging. Um, uh, you know, I think, as, as I mentioned to you before, we're dealing with two things here. We're dealing with war and we're dealing with weather. We mm. have a very cold and harsh winter um, with rationing on top of that. That could be very difficult. Uh, if we have a very mild winter like we had last winter, it will be a lot more forgiving. And that will certainly uh, blunt a lot of the, the sharpness of the, of, the, of the crisis that we're facing. But the very likelihood is that we are facing into some level of rationing here in Ireland, then UK, right across Europe. We're hearing that from the International Energy Agency. We're hearing that from Commissioner McGuinness uh, earlier during the week. And, and, and in many ways, I suppose what we have to do is just hope for the best, but we should be certainly planning for the worst. And, and, in, and in fairness, I think the EU is, it has already reacted. It is, as part of the new regulations brought in, sanctioning all member states to build up their reserves you know, prior to the winter and also requiring greater interconnection between member states and, and and asking them to ask in a collegiate manner with regard to the supply of gas during the winter. It's, it's interesting that Ireland, Cyprus and Malta are, are the only, only EU member states that don't or aren't directly connected to EU gas networks. 
So we're, we're in an unusual position. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to News Talks Taking Stock with me, Mandy Johnston, and we're talking to Dr. Paul Dean from UCC and Mark Varian, Chair of the Energy and Environment Committee at the British Irish Chamber of Commerce. Um, can I just ask you then, Paul, just turning to that issue of um, what we replace uh, these fuels with? So in the short term, we obviously have to f- focus on the European supply to bridge the gap, but... There's a lot of uh, attention to the development of renewable energy. Do you detect uh, or have identified progress made by the government that they've taken the necessary steps to not just safeguard the energy supplies we have now, but that they're doing enough to uh, guard us against over-reliance on fossil fuels in the future? I think in, in many ways we're doing a lot of the right things in Ireland, but we're not just doing doing them uh, quick enough and we're certainly not doing them to the level that matches the urgency of both the climate crisis and the energy crisis that we're having at the moment. So in the last number of years, the build out of renewables, you know, our greatest strength here in Ireland is, is renewables. It's the fuel that flows over our head for, for free uh, every day. But the, the build out of, of, of wind farms, both onshore and offshore and solar farms, has been painstakingly so. It's really at a complete odds with the urgency that we express around climate action and renewable action. So we, we know what we have to do. We are certainly not doing it quick enough, but we have to manage expectations as well. Suppose a lot of the talk around the current energy crisis is on the promise of renewables and, and, and hydrogen and decarbonized gases. And, and certainly um, that is key, but that is the future. All these things will take at least a decade to deliver. And even if we roll it back further, Mandy, and look at the, the climate action plan that we have here in Ireland, which is correctly one of the most ambitious climate action plans that we have uh, to date, and certainly one of the most ambitious in Europe, that will still only reduce our reliance on gas by about 50% over the next 10 years. So mm. Ireland does need to have a serious look at how we use fossil fuels. Uh, it's not going to go away anyway soon. Uh, and we do need to prepare for, I suppose, a, a more volatile and uncertain future. And having the discussions around LNG, around gas storage, or around certainly the quicker build out of renewables is a conversation that we need to have quickly in Ireland and, and, and hopefully uh, act on it. Yeah, Mark, just, just to bring you back in here, Mark, I just wanted to pick up on some comments that John Melvin from the CRU said that um, the, 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 while the state has, has benefited from a diverse range of fuels in the past, such as coal and oil and gas, gas will become the go-to fossil fuel for the next decade. What was the discussion around that? Were there any solutions to where we might get that gas from if it's not indigenous gas in the future? It's, it's not a straightforward answer. The reason gas is so popular uh, as part of the energy transition is that it's, if you like, the least worst fossil fuel uh, out there. Well, it's also, you can store it and when the wind isn't blowing and the sun isn't shining, it's dispatchable in the sense that you can use it uh, to, to back up the, the renewable uh, energy sources. Absolutely. And you need dispatchable energy sources so that could be oil coal gas but you're right um, gas is in that sense is the least worst of the three i mean what is disappointing is that there's been lng projects that have been mooted in ireland for nearly 20 years but none have been constructed and of course reacting to these geopolitical events in terms of building infrastructure doesn't really work because as, as Paul has alluded, it takes really eight to ten years to build, uh, you know, a substantial piece of infrastructure of whatever nature. 
mm. you know, taking it from feasibility through planning, through construction and operation. So unfortunately, LNG is a solution because you can ship the liquefied natural gas and, and, and then use it in Ireland. But of course, that's, that would only be of benefit in 10 years' time. Well, there's certainly a lot of short-term and immediate problems for the government when it comes to dealing with the energy issue. But for now, we'll have to leave it there. That's Dr. Paul Dean from UCC and Mark Varian, who is chair of the Energy and Environment Committee at the British Irish Chamber of Commerce. Thank you both for joining us today. Thank you. Thank you. This is Mandy Johnston with you on News Talks Taking Stock. Coming up next, we'll discuss the new rules for naming and shaming the companies with gender pay gaps. Find out more after the break. You're welcome back to News Talks Taking Stock. I'm Mandy Johnson. Now, recently, the government passed new rules that obliged larger companies to report and publicly explain their gender pay gaps. So to find out what it might mean for you as an employer or as a worker, I'm joined now in studio by Dune O'Doherty, who is a tax partner in PwC's People and Organisation Practice. Dune, you're very welcome. Thanks for coming in to us today. Thanks, Mandy. So the new rules on gender pay gaps. Uh, how do you define the gender pay gap firstly and what are government asking business to do now? Okay, well I think the easiest thing to do Mandy is to start by explaining what gender pay gap is not. And there's often some confusion that it equates to equal pay. So equal pay is a legal obligation uh, requiring employers to pay men and women equally if they do the same job. A gender pay gap, on the other hand, looks at the average of what men in total earn in an organisation and the average of what women earn in an organisation, and it compares the two. Um, so unlike equal pay, which looks at doing same, similar roles or same roles, gender pay is irrespective of whether you do the same role, you have the same experience, or you work the same pattern. Having a gender pay gap doesn't necessarily point to breaching the equal pay legislation. So an organisation which pays men and women equally can still have a gender pay gap, really because we see different levels of representation between men and women at different levels in the organisation. So the UK, a couple of years ahead of us, introduced gender pay gap reporting in 2017. Um, and one sector which declared quite a large pay gap was the airline industry. So why was that? Well, typically because males tended to be in pilot roles, well paid, high average pay. Women, on the other hand, were in lower paid cabin crew roles, hence hence the gap. Okay, so it's an average in a company 100%. of what male um, employees get and then an average of what females, and it's the difference between That's the two. That's it, exactly. So what are government asking larger businesses to do now? Okay, a couple of things. Firstly, they have to compute their gender pay gap. They then need to publish what that number is cut a number of different ways. They also need to um, elaborate on what the drivers are, what the reasons are for that gap and importantly, what steps they're going to take to, to reduce the gap and to address it over time. Importantly, the legislation currently only applies to employers with over 250 employees. That'll reduce in time to 150 employees in 2024, reducing further to 50 employees in 2025. So not everyone is caught now, but the vast majority of employers will be caught over time. Now, you say uh, that this is going to cause some difficulties for business, but why is that? Because if you've got employees 
numbers over 250. You've got data systems, you're running quite a complex pay uh, role. It's not easy for companies just to compile all this data and take a snapshot in time. Quite a lot of data to be gathered. So the first thing companies need to do is identify what data they need to get. Secondly, where is it? You mentioned payroll systems, 100%. Uh, uh, HR systems also a large part to play in in data collection and share scheme administrators for companies that have share schemes they'll need to pull in the resources as well. What's the share scheme? So if you offer shares to your employees they will need to be reportionate as well. And then a lot of companies are struggling with resources so you need to identify someone or some people in the organisation who are going to collate the data and do the calculations or maybe outsource it to a third party provider. It's not all about the numbers though and actually if you think about it what the public and your employees are going to see is the context for the numbers. So a lot of the background work that you do is going to be invisible to the vast majority of people. So it's thinking about your comms strategy. So what are your key messages? Who are your key stakeholders? Internal, your employees, as you mentioned, external, the media, regulators, investors, shareholders, a lot of additional work to be done in that regard. So is there a worry that if you become involved in this reporting and it's externalised and it becomes public that there might be that... Um, a perception that a gender pay gap might mean um, the gender equality gap thing, that there might be that deliberate, or not deliberate, but accidental, um, I suppose, misconception that you might have a gender issue within your company. Is that a fear? It is a fear and it's one that companies are addressing and they need to be very clear in their report why their gender pay gap arises, going back to the average piece and the representation. Um, The other thing to bear in mind, Mandy, is that it's an annual reporting requirement. So notwithstanding the fact that in year one you may have a large gender pay gap, what's important is that you can start to show progress over the years. It's not a one and done. It's not a silver bullet. It's going to be a journey. And the most important thing is to be able to point to progress. So this is a good thing, really. You have transparency um, within the company. You have external transparency. You You can compare yourself against other companies and you can improve your performances. But is it just the tip of the iceberg? Uh, We're going to see um, pay gap reporting on things like ethnicity, on executive versus, uh, let's say, uh, you know, employees in general sense. Is this just the beginning of that report? I, th- I think you're absolutely right. Uh, and as we talk, there is an EU pay transparency directive actually working its way through the EU, which is calling for additional pay transparency around uh, salary grades and salary grids to be made available to both employees and candidates that you're looking to hire. Ethnicity reporting, you know, again, absolutely, UK is a couple of years ahead of us on that as well. And companies are actually voluntarily taking the initiative to report on ethnicity reporting. Um, so it is it is only the tip of the iceberg. If you've just joined us, you're listening to News Talks Taking Stock with me, Mandy Johnston. We're talking to Dune O'Doherty, who is a tax partner in PwC's People and Organisations Practice. So... Um, Does this also include um, part-time workers, uh, contract workers? Is it everything within a company that has to be included here if you're looking at the gender pay gap and the average within your company for men and women? Correct. It's anyone with whom you have an employment contract with. And specifically, the legislation requires you to calculate the pay gap relevant to part-time workers and temporary contractors. But it will also capture people like summer interns, agency workers, if they are in an employment of contract with you as an employer. And so say, Dune, you, you've you've captured this data for the first time and you've identified, oh God, we do have a big gender pay gap within our company, like the airlines mm-hmm. that you mentioned there. What can companies do to sort of address that? It really depends on what the data is telling you. Why do you have the gap? Is it, for example, that females 
or males, depending on which way your gap falls, are disadvantaged through the hiring process. Or they may be disadvantaged through salary negotiations, promotion prospects. Or do you just have a large attrition of male and females at a particular grade in the organisation for some reason? So depending on what the reason is, that's really going to dictate the action that you take. So you may, for example, want to introduce more fairness to the hiring process. So maybe not asking about earnings history during an interview. You may want to look at offering flexible working by default for all, male and female, or you may want to introduce some kind of mentoring or leadership programme. So lots of steps that you can take, but they have to be relevant to why your gap is arisen. And presumably the gender equality issue will feed in here as more women become part of, um, I say, management or higher up the food chain. This will sort of balance out the gen- the, the pay gap issue as well. It, it will. But like I said, it, it's going to take time. Mm. So if we go back to the airline example, it was a long established, well-known challenge within the industry. The industry is making moves to hire more female pilots. But if you balance that with the significant number of males already in high positions, the low level of attrition within the industry, it's going to take time to bleed its way through. It's the right step. So PwC have said, look, they think that this is going to be difficult for some businesses. What would you like to see happen now? There are two areas in particular that we need more clarity for the government on. Uh, The first is on the treatment of bonuses, where there is a contradiction in treatment between the regulations which were issued and the guidance from the government. And the second is on the treatment of periods of leave. So if a person is on annual leave, maternity leave, we know what pay to include, but what hours do you include in terms of the calculation? And that could determine the size of the gap that you arrive at. What is the theory behind this? What do do we hope to achieve by having these regulations in place and the new reporting system up and running? So ultimately, over time, fairer representation of men and women throughout an organisation. You know, I, I've yet to meet an employer who doesn't want a productive, engaged, equal, thriving workforce and ge- equal gender representation is all part of that. The other thing I would add uh, and very relevant at the moment is the massive war for talent that Mm. we're all struggling with. And I think companies which show a large gender pay gap, but a persistent gender pay gap, are really going to struggle to retain talent and attract talent in the current market as well. Because uh, candidates are looking more at what the company's ethos, ethics, social, corporate Absolutely. This feeds into the entire ESG. It feeds right into the S, the social aspect. And companies are, are, candidates are very much looking at what a company's social ethos is in the marketplace. Finally, doing on this, ultimately, it's a good thing for business as well, is it? Ultimately, a very good thing for business to know what the data tells them and where they are to direct their ambition. Okay, well, thank you very much for coming in and explaining this quite complex uh, but niche regulation that I think will overall be of benefit to both business and to employees. For now, we leave it there. That's Dune O'Doherty, a tax partner with PwC's People and Organisation Practice. Dune, thanks for coming in to us thanks. today. This is Mandy Johnston with you on News Talks Taking Stock. Coming up, as Boris is missing in action on foreign manoeuvres, we'll examine what type of political manoeuvres have been going on in the Tory party in his absence. That's all after the break. This is Mandy Johnston with you on News Talks Taking Stock. Now, Boris Johnson is facing a fresh threat from Conservative rebels who are, we hear, planning a takeover of the powerful backbench committee um, that could, in fact, force the Prime Minister for office by changing its rules. We're joined now by Sir John Curtis, Professor of Politics at the University of Strathclyde and Senior Research Fellow, Nat Sen Social Research and the UK in a Changing Europe. John, you're very welcome. Thanks for joining us today. 
Nice to be with you. Earlier in the week, uh, John, we heard Boris Johnson call questions over his leadership, just political commentary. What do you make of the latest troubles that he finds himself in? Well, of course, the latest wobble amongst Conservative MPs uh, about the Prime Minister's continued uh, tenure uh, in office was occasioned by the two by-elections that took place, one in the north of England, one in Devon in the southwest, uh, both of which the Conservatives lost with their vote going down by about 20 points. Uh, one of them lost to Labour in a so-called red wall seat, i.e. a place that was traditionally Labour but voted Conservative in 2019 in the wake of having voted in favour of Brexit. Uh, the other, a seat uh, lost to the Democrats, who have been now the third by-election they've taken off the Conservatives in the last uh, year or so. That perhaps has helped to drive home to some Conservative MPs that perhaps uh, the Prime Minister's unpopularity is somewhat deeper uh, than they thought. And I think also the Prime Minister hasn't done himself much good by suggesting that he wasn't necessarily going to be able to change his character or even necessarily uh, had any prospect of uh, thinking about uh, resigning at some point in the future. Uh, Against that backdrop, And given that the elections to the backbench committee, the so-called 1922 committee, are due to take place, and given it is that that committee that can decide whether or not to reopen the issue, um, I think it's not surprising that a concerted attempt is going to be made by those who want Mr Johnson to go to uh, keep open the prospect that he could be challenged at some point before next year. Yeah, you might be forgiven for thinking that the reason why he got over the last challenge to his leadership was purely timing and that, you know, those people who want to lead a challenge against him simply weren't ready. And that after the centenary uh, celebrations, um, they had enough signatures which were predicated on dates. But there was no sense that there was an organised coup against him, really, was there? No, it wasn't an organised coup. It literally was a body of individuals, one by one, some of whom had put in letters demanding a vote, uh, not just months, but in some cases uh, uh, more than a a year ago. Uh, There wasn't any coordination. They didn't know uh, when, if ever, they were going to get above the 54 letters that they needed for the vote to take place. But once that benchmark was passed at the time of the um, platinum uh, celebrations of Queen Elizabeth's reign, um, then uh, 10 Downing Street moved very, very swiftly that the ballot should be held literally uh, the same day. Um, But although the Prime Minister survived, in the end, he did get 40% of his parliamentary party voting against him. And almost undoubtedly, a majority of those who don't currently have some kind of ministerial office voted against the Prime Minister. Now, given that's the case, it was almost the only sensible conclusion you drew from what happened in that ballot was to accept that probably the Prime Minister's position was certainly not secure and that it wouldn't necessarily take a great deal more potentially to go wrong for uh, the issue to uh, be reopened once again. And certainly uh, that's happening at least to a degree now. And let's look what's what's been happening in the wake of those by-elections. So we've got a couple of things. MPs discussing defections, proposed fresh letters of no confidence, um, potential mutinous cabinet um, um, d- discussions. Um, how likely do you think he is to weather these storms? <laughs> 
It's a very, very difficult call. I mean, Boris Johnson is a politician who manages to survive um, difficulties uh, that would bring most politicians down. Um, so I don't think anybody can say with a great deal of confidence that he's, that he's going to go. But I would say that certainly there's a non-trivial probability. I mean, it's, a, it's at least a third, possibly more, that at some point between now and the next UK general election uh, that the Conservative Party will, will rebel against him. And that certainly will be the case if the party continues to be behind in the polls, if the Prime Minister's personal ratings continue to be weak. Probably the point at which he's getting, and now he's going to be probably most vulnerable is, that, of course, the, the Committee on Privileges has just started its work to look at whether or not the Prime Minister misled the House of Commons when he said you know, there weren't any parties during lockdown uh, and I've been assured that you know, all the rules were followed at all times. Um, uh, when, of course, in the end, of course, he at least was fined for at least his attendance at one of those uh, so-called gatherings. Um, now, we don't know how that committee is going to rule, and we certainly won't know the outcome until the autumn. But that's probably where, at the moment, he is most immediately vulnerable. I think, certainly, if the Committee on Privileges, which will have a Conservative majority uh, on it, were to suggest either that he did deliberately mislead the House, or perhaps something a bit weaker, but to suggest that he wasn't as uh, frank with the House as he could have been, um, that that may be a point at which Tory MPs, some of them who just find his behaviour ethically unacceptable, others who are concerned about the actual consequences, that those two groups in combination might then feel that it's time for him to go, i.e. that it's not going to be possible for the damage to be repaired. And... Um John, you say that the timetable for that is the autumn. The Tories have also questioned the impartiality of those. Um, well, uh, some, of the, some, of the, some of those in 10 Downing Street have allegedly, uh, but anonymously, said that they don't like the fact that people can anonymously uh, give evidence to the Committee on Privileges. Well, um, given that the first comment was anonymous, I'm not quite sure why they're complaining about the possibility of people talking anonymously to the Committee on Privileges. But anyway... John, just going back to something you said about Boris Johnson confounding all predictions, um, you know, and we can't apply any of the normal rules that we would to politics. Like he said something earlier this week that he wanted to stay uh, in number 10 well into the uh, 2030s. I know some people have said it's hubris. Others have said it's an attempt on humour. But he sort of reminds me of a quote about Bill Clinton where he said occasionally he stumbles upon the the truth and then he picks himself up and carries on as if nothing ever happened. Is he delusional or is he just one of these guys who just keeps going for power's sake? Because it's not about policy, is it? Um, it's sometimes certainly been argued that Boris Johnson is more interested in being being prime minister than um, acting as prime minister, though I'm not sure that's a fair comment. I mean, at the end of the day, I think the the, the, the crucial, most crucial characteristic about the Prime Minister, which is why, uh, in some sense, he's got into some of the difficulties he has. His, his crucial attribute as a politician is that he wants to achieve the objectives that he believes in, he wants to get done, and he's not so concerned about how you get there. Mm. So he, and therefore, he, you know, he's not somebody who is finely tuned to the demands of constitutional propriety and process. He is also somebody who many people argued has a somewhat loose relationship with the truth. Now, 
at the end of the day, the extent to which any of us know our, know ourselves well and certainly know how we come across to others, well, I guess all of our, in all our cases, our self-knowledge is somewhat limited. But I think some people would argue that perhaps Boris Johnson is somewhat less aware of the impact he has on others and, and on the propriety or otherwise of his behavior, um, you know, to a degree that perhaps is somewhat unusual. And, uh, you know, to that extent, at least his self, he's, he's rather low on the self-awareness scale. And that perhaps is one of the reasons why he may not be aware as to why what he has done necessarily offends others. Mm. And that's certainly why his focus on outcome isn't always the, the other people will not necessarily judge him simply by that criterion, but will also say, but did you achieve your outcome by a way that I regard as being fair and reasonable? If you've just joined us, you're listening to News Talks Taking Stock with me, Mandy Johnston, and we're talking to Sir John Curtis, Professor of Politics at the University of Strathclyde. John, can I turn to um, the issue of Brexit, please? Um, we love talking about Brexit here in Ireland, and I think we're more convulsed, certainly more convulsed with it than the UK, UK public. When the government uh, last week decided that it was going to abandon the Northern Ireland Protocol and we had that subsequent reaction from the EU Commission, there wasn't the cacophony of outrage that some expected from either the Tory backbenchers or indeed international um, agencies. We had some you know, noise from the, the Commission. We had um, a statement from some of the Democrats in relation to their support for Northern Ireland and the peace process. But... Is there any sense of that over there or what's the feeling on on that Brexit um, decision now? Well, uh, there's a couple of questions there, uh, Mandy. The first is where does the UK stand on the broad principle of uh, the decision that was made in June 2016? The short answer to you is it's just as divided on the subject now as it was six years ago. Um, on average, the polls, if you ask people whether or not the UK should rejoin the European Union or whether it should stay out, tend to get a slight majority in favour of rejoining. And certainly one of the things that's gradually happening, given that it is older people predominantly who voted to leave and younger people who voted to remain, that as demographic turnover gradually uh, becomes greater and greater as more time elapses. So there is a long-term process going on there whereby the UK, unless people change their minds, is going to move in the direction of wanting to go back inside uh, the European Union. But on the Northern Ireland Protocol, I mean, I hate to say this to you on the other side of the water, but the, the, the population in Great Britain, as opposed to Northern Ireland, is not terribly exercised about the position of Northern Ireland. I can tell you two or three things about public attitudes. The first is that actually a majority of people, certainly a plurality, say, why does Northern Ireland have different arrangements for Brexit than the rest of Great Britain? Mm. There's a sense of it should just be the same everywhere. The second thing I can then say to you is that... um, on the, for the, the most popular, once you start asking people, should there be checks across the Irish Sea between Great Britain and Northern Ireland? And equally, should, or alternatively, should there be checks 
between the Republic and the North? The most common answer you get is either I neither support nor oppose these things or I don't know. Mm. And amongst those who do express a view, it tends to be pretty close to 50-50. So the only thing you therefore need to realize about public opinion on this side of the water is that most people just aren't engaged with the issue. They don't have terribly strong views. The thing you need to understand yeah. is this, is that the people who believe that there should be checks between Great Britain and Northern Ireland tend to be the same people who think that there should be checks between the North and the Republic. In other words, mm. what you pick up with these questions is actually there isn't any obvious appreciation amongst the public in Great Britain of the fact that these are meant to be alternatives. Some people believe in customs controls and therefore they will back either of these things. And some people don't believe in customs controls and they will oppose both of them. So the truth is this big elite level debate about what you do about Northern Ireland just does not touch public opinion in Great Britain. I suppose the thing I really was getting at was, and, and to relate to your second point there is, do people care whether or not the British government uh, or the UK government are willing to abandon international agreements, whether it's with um, the EU or whether it's with about Northern Ireland? Is there any sense over there of that, 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 that Boris Johnson is leading a government who are willing to just walk away from international agreements that they signed up to themselves only a couple of years ago? Um. I don't think we've got any direct evidence on this, but I think probably the way to understand it will be this. Most Leave voters will blame the European Union for the fact that there are checks between Great Britain and Northern Ireland. Now, I think it's something that's being imposed on the United Kingdom uh, by the European Union and will therefore think that what the United Kingdom government is doing is right. Whereas those people who voted Remain will feel that it's just uh, that the fact that you had to have mm. special arrangements for Northern Ireland in the first place is just another example of the indication of the yeah. folly of a Brexit and therefore will uh, in, uh, oppose yeah, it what just, the UK it, government it, is doing. It just gives them further reason. I want to turn briefly and finally, if I can, John, to the issue of the opposition. Um, and I know you've been writing about this recently, the Liberal Democrats and the Labour increasingly seeing alliances from them. Can you talk to me a little bit about that? Well, there are no formal alliances um, in the sense of, you know, the Liberal Democrats are not standing down in constituencies and letting Labour have, no, but have in, a free in, reign or vice versa. In, in the by-elections, there's definitely evidence <laughs> of them kind of not working against each other. Absolutely. So in Wakefield, the Liberal Democrats did not uh, run an effective campaign. And in Tiverton Hall, and even though Labour started off in second place, but it is a place where historically... The Liberal Democrats have performed strongly. The Labour Party did not particularly campaign. And this is not the first time this has happened. It's happened in other by-elections. So there certainly is an informal understanding between the parties that they are going to focus on this, respectively, on the seats that, where they think they've got a chance. And if they don't think they've got a chance, they're not going to get involved. OK. Mm. But, of course, that only has an impact if voters pick up the queue. And one of the problems the Conservatives potentially face is that it looks as though voters are beginning to be willing to pick up the queue. Um, so in other words, in the end, particularly in Tiverton and Honiton, you know, the Labour vote just collapses. They got nearly 20% of the vote in 2019 in the constituency. They were down to what, 3 4% uh, back in the by-election. Mm. So um, 
And it's pretty clear that the, most of that went towards the Liberal Democrats. And indeed, actually, the decline in the Labour vote in that constituency is rather greater than the Liberal Democrat majority over the Conservatives. Now, there wasn't much of a Democrat vote left in Wakefield in the first place. They only got 4% in 2019, and it just goes down to 2%. But there's other evidence also from the local elections that took place in England back at the beginning of May. There also, um, you saw that in the places where the Democrats were starting off second to the Conservatives, the Democrats were rising more strongly. And when Labour, places where Labour were second to the Conservatives, then Labour were rising more strongly. So it's beginning to look as though voters are willing, some of them at least, mm. to vote for whichever of those two parties they think is the better stick with which to beat the Conservatives. And that therefore the problem the Conservatives face is not just simply they've lost a fair amount of popularity in the last six months, but that perhaps opposition voters, some of them at least, now dislike the Conservatives and Boris Johnson enough that they are willing to vote tactically in this way. And then there are other things that have been going on that have helped this. You know, back in 2019, very little of this happened because Liberal Democrats wouldn't vote for a Labour Party led by the left-wing Jeremy Corbyn, and Labour voters wouldn't vote for the Liberal Democrats who had been in coalition with the Conservatives between 2010 and 2015. Those barriers now seem to have fallen away on both sides, and it does therefore mean that the Conservatives could well find the next election is more difficult to fight because of voters basically ganging up on them, uh, gang, ganging up against them in, in the Labour and Liberal Democrat marginal seats. Well, certainly the swings that we've seen in recent by-elections against them um, are an indication perhaps that Boris wants their biggest asset is now their Achilles heel. I'm sure we could spend another hour just talking about this, uh, John, but for now we'll have to leave it there. That's Sir John Curtis, Professor of Politics at the University of Strathclyde. John, thank you very much for joining us today. You're welcome. Well, that's it for this episode of Taking Stock. Next week, we'll be looking at the world of commercial property in Ireland and see what's been happening to it since the pandemic. And while we broadcast at this time on Sunday mornings, we're also available as a podcast first from Friday mornings on the News Talk app. My thanks to all of today's guests and to Taking Stock producer John Fardy with Jojo Cardoso on sound. Jonathan McRae is up next with Future Proof and then it's Gavin Riley with On The Record and they'll be reviewing all your Sunday papers. So for now, from Taking Stock with me, Mandy Johnston, thank you for listening and enjoy the rest of your day.